And so now, Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would be present among us, that you would help us to be comforted where we need comfort, to be convicted where we need to be convicted. And maybe this morning all we have is a wordless prayer where our lips have fallen silent and all we can do is sigh. Maybe on the other hand, we have so many words, so much to tell you, so much we're frightened about, so much we're fearful about, so much anxiety, so many feelings of guilt and shame and wishing we could have another go at it all. Uh, some of us feel joyful, are just thrilled with this beautiful day we have and this weekend and being free from the bonds of school and being able to go into the summer and rest. Some of us feel overwhelmed with life. Wherever we are, Father, we pray that you would give us the words we need, the thoughts we need by your Spirit to interact now, this hour with you, to worship you. That's why we're here. We know that for some, our feet have stumbled and we've nearly slipped. And we look at this world and we wonder why so many people are getting away with so many things. And all of these thoughts can be oppressive until, as the psalmist says, we enter the sanctuary of God. And we see there in your sanctuary a sovereign God sitting on your throne who knows all, who sees all, who will one day judge rightly and everyone will give an account for their sins and for those that claim Christ. You'll cover over all of our sin, all of our pain, all of our shame with your love and with your righteousness. And you'll say, this is my son, this is my daughter, heirs with Christ of the inheritance eternally that he has won on our behalf. Welcome to your Father's reward. So in this uh, crazy world that we live in, this broken and fallen world where we're ambassadors of redemption, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us and that, as you say in the Psalms, you would hold us by your right hand, that picture when we're scared or stumbling of a heavenly Father who reaches out your hand and we reach up to grab yours. So may we walk through life that way because our heart and our flesh well, they're going to fail. But you're the strength of our heart, and you're our portion forever. And so on this hour, we proclaim right now, as for us, it is good for us to be near you, God. Give us what we need this hour for the rest of this week until you bring us back in worship. We pray in your name. Amen. Hey, how many people, I don't know if I want to ask you to raise your hands or not, so you just do you. Um, how many people have ever heard a sermon on the Song of Solomon? Uh, if you have been at this church for 15 years, you should raise your hand because I preached the whole series on it. So let me re-ask the question. How many have ever heard a good sermon on the Song of Solomon? <laughs> 
uh, we usually avoid it, you know? We have all of this history that we've been reading as we journey through the Scripture together, and then we get to this book of poetry and all this verbose language, all this flowery language. I love what Moody says when he says, I'm glad that there are things in the Bible that I don't understand. If I could take a book and read it as I would any other book, well, I might think I could write a book like that. But when you read the scriptures, you realize we couldn't possibly write a book like this. You know, the scriptures read different than any other book that is uh, founded on the world religion. Take uh, the Upanishads, take the Quran, take uh, the Bhagavad Gita, which you should read all of those and familiarize yourself with them. The, the Bible reads so much differently. But the question we want to try to answer today is why is this book even in the Bible? I mean, why is it here? After all of the kings and all of the story of all the history, why do we have this book of poetry? Now, first of all, let's say what it's not. It's not an allegory. A lot of times it's been preached that way. Matter of fact, my favorite scholar, John Owen, actually thought it was an allegory, that the whole thing was just an allegory between Christ and his people. But scholarship has proven that that's not true. It's also not a book about sexual instruction, it's been preached that way. I've heard that multiple times, and it's always cringeworthy when people preach it that way. It's not a book about how to date or how to court somebody. It's not that either. Matter of fact, there's two kind of ways that you can look at this. You can look at this as the Song of Songs, or you can look at this as the Song of Solomon. Now, in your Bible, if you have an ESV, it's going to be referred to as the Song of Solomon. And that's a tip of the hat from the editors, the people that translated the ESV, to say, we believe that this is a historical document between Solomon and between one of his wives and how they came together and, and their poetry that they shared back and forth. If in your Bible it says Song of Songs, then that's a tip of the hat from the editors, the people that translated that uh, particular version of the Bible, that they believe that it's a collection of poetry, a collection of love songs, not necessarily related to Solomon. You might think of it like a mixtape from the 80s. Remember mixtapes? <laughs> this is how it worked, kids. We would get together and we would find some songs and we would put them, we would record them, or we'd sit by the radio and wait for them to come on and we'd press record really quick and you'd get the set of songs and you'd put a love song in there to you know, kind of indicate to the person you're going to give it to that I actually like you, and then you would hand it to them. It'd be like if you had a Spotify pay playlist that you shared uh, with somebody that you're interested in that had all of these uh, songs, love songs on them. Matter of fact, the interns that you saw we had them over for lunch on Sunday, and we had a, uh, a long discussion about what historical time period that you would want to live in. And we talked about the Civil War, we talked about Lincoln, we talked about the Middle Ages, and then Anna Muncy said, you know what historical time period I'd love to live in? I said, no, what, Anna? She said, the 80s. <laughs> the 80s. I'm like, I'm that historical time period. <laughs> it, it was not that great. And then I started thinking, actually it was, Top Gun. You know, all the great things. And Anna said, I'd love to live in the time period before there were phones where people had to interact with each other. That's a great intern to hire at the church. So why is this in the Bible? Well, there's four points I want to talk through. The purpose of love, the process of love, the problem of love, and the promise of love. 
We're going to look at two texts. We're going to look at, first of all, Song of Solomon 2, and then Song of Solomon 4. And in one text, we're going to see the bride, or the future bride, adoring this, uh, her husband. And then the next text, we're going to see the husband adoring his bride on their wedding night. Song of Solomon 2, verse 8. And I'm just going to kind of riff through this and take a while to kind of read through it. Here's what she says. The voice of my beloved... Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Uh, You should try that, women. (laughs) When your husband comes home from work tired and just comes in a driveway, you are like a gazelle. You're just, this is a language, obviously it's the language of love. Nobody is bounding over hills. Nobody's just, you know, kind of doing this, coming to see his uh, bride for the first time. It's the language of love. Behold, you're like a young stag. Verse 9, behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. Now that's just creepy. I'm, get this. Get what's going on in your mind, right? I mean, this is this is a historical way to view it. She's watching him come over the hills to try to visit her, and he doesn't have the courage to come to the front door, so he's hiding behind the lattice work. You know what we used to have to do when you wanted to date some of these? You had to call their house. You couldn't text them. And you had to call their house and hope to the Lord that you would get the mom or the girl on the first try because you didn't want to get the dad, who then you had to talk to on the phone until the girl arrived. But many times, many times, I remember sitting by the phone trying to have the courage to just pick it up and dial the number. And here's this guy hiding behind the lattice, doesn't know if he has the courage to go and I'd like to see you. Verse 10, my beloved speaks to me and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, the voice of the turtle dove is heard on our land. So it's basically springtime, everything, love just kind of enters the world in spring, right? All the turtle doves, everybody's singing, the rain's over, the winter's over, things are ripening. Verse 13, the fig tree ripens its figs and the vines are in blossom and they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. In other words, come out, you're hiding behind the lattice still. Come out of all those cliffs. Come out of the crannies. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And then she gets practical. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil our vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. In other words, this is great that we have this relationship, but I also have a pest problem. And if you could solve that, we've got these foxes that keep eating everything. If you're going to be of any use whatsoever... Just catch the foxes. That's what I need you to do. And then verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. That one you should underline. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft mountains. Now let's skip over to Song of Solomon chapter 4. After the bride's dream and after Solomon arises 
uh, for the wedding. If you view it that way, not just as a mixtape, but if you view it as a historical situation between Solomon and unfortunately, we have to say, one of his wives, uh, we see chapter four. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. It's a more direct way to say it, isn't it? That's more of a, a guy way to say it. You're, you're just really pretty. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. They're white and beautiful like doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down from the slopes of Gilead. And again, just try that one day. <laughs> After your wife gets her hair cut, I love what they did. It's like goats just flowing from the top of your head. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ooze that have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. We have, in this culture, we have set the bar way too high. Because here, all he says is, you've brushed your teeth, and you have them all. Like, each has its twin. They're, they're all there, and you've washed them. You're unbelievable to me. I mean, that's, that's where they were at this day and age. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like a half a pomegranate behind your veil. All of this language. I would love to, I'm going to try that with Elizabeth this afternoon. Your cheeks, babe, are like a, I took a cantaloupe and cut it in half and put it on both sides. That's how, how beautiful your cheeks are. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Now, this is interesting because what scholars think that this is referring to are the rings, imagine Ethiopian women, the rings that would put around their necks to elongate their necks. You might still think that everybody in the Bible is white. Not the case, friends. Many, most scholars think that Solomon had African origin and that actually this person was probably of Ethiopian origin, the person he was marrying with all the rings that they would have around their necks to elongate their necks. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. I know you're all nervous about what I'm going to say, so I'm (laughs) moving on. Let me just say, some of our academy kids, often they'll, they'll write a verse when they're saying goodbye in their yearbook, and sometimes they'll put that one down. Don't do that. <laughs> Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh in the hill of frankincense. You're altogether beautiful, my love. There's no flaw in you. Underline that one, too. First of all, the purpose of love. Uh, Part of this book is help us to redeem sexuality and what we would call eros, erotic love or romantic love. And that romantic love can happen in the proper context of seeing each other as made in the image of God. So in Christian theology, we believe, going back to Genesis, we believe that people are made in the image of God. So everybody that you deal with in this life, everybody, whether it's somebody who is homeless, whether it is somebody who has some kind of physical impairment, whether it's somebody who uh, you just don't like, everybody is made in the image of God. And in the context of this book, it's meant to tell us that we're all image bearers and we need to treat each other appropriately so. 
And we'll put a chart up, and this chart shows the problem of what happens if we're not image bearers, and I think it will be up there. There it is. The proper view is that we view ourselves in the image of God, and we view others as the image of God. That's the proper view. The improper view is we view ourselves as the image of God, and we view somebody else as an object. Now, what happens if you have that worldview? What happens? What do you fill in the blank? What happens? Well, many things, one of which is genocide. I, I viewed those people as an object. I, I, so those Jews, we're not perfect. I can cut you off the face of the earth. Or on a more micro level, rape. I get to do whatever I want to to you. An object of mankind or humankind and the object of others as humankind. What happens if you have that second category? Well, pornography would be the initial outworking of that. This is transactional. We're just objects here. It doesn't matter. I'm not viewing you as an image bearer. Or the last one, an object. I view myself, I'm just an object of humankind, but I view you as the image of God. What happens there? Idolatry. I just, I, I, I adore you, I, I, I idolize you, I want to be like you, I'm nothing, I'm worth nothing, I'm no good to anybody. The only way that we can have a proper worldview is the top one, that we view ourselves as image bearers and we view others as image bearers. And relationships, whether they're romantic relationships or whether they're friendships, are meant to be depositories of hope where we communicate to each other, you are an image bearer of God himself. And don't forget that. You're not just an object. You're not just a group of cells put together. You're an image bearer. But something's gone horribly wrong. Because now for most of us in this world, our relationships, whether they're erotic relationships, romantic relationships, whether they're friendships, most of our relationships have just become transactional. We're not looking at other people as image bearers. We're looking at them as, I need something from you, or you need something from me, and I'm going to have a transaction with you until I get it. And my, I might even manipulate this relationship until I get what I want. And of course, sexuality has gone horribly wrong in this world we live in. C.S. Lewis says, and I've read this before, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. And suppose you come to a, come up, a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage, slowly lifting the cover so that everyone could see, and just before the lights went out, that it contained a little bit of bacon or a lamb chop. Would you not think that that country had something gone horribly wrong with their appetite for food and would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there was something very weird about the state of the sexual instinct among us? One uh, famous porn star, I won't give her name because I don't want you to Google her, but she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. And she said this, When did we lose the idea that normal intimacy is just not good enough? Now, that's somebody from that industry who said, how, how has this gotten so far off? And she's not even a believer. And she recognizes everything has gotten so far off here. It, it's not right or not normal for interactions to be solidified down to swiping left or right. Something has gone horribly wrong. 
And the book of Song of Solomons teaches us that we're to treat everybody as image bearers. Now, there's a process of love. That's the purpose of love. There's a process of love. And let me show you two things real quick, the lines I wanted you to underline. First of all, it's dignified and dialogical. Look at verse 16. It says, my beloved is mine, and I am his. In other words, when I say to premarital couples, I don't really do that anymore, but we do need marriage mentors to help with that process if you uh, are interested. Uh, But when I did premarital counseling, I would say to people all the time, it's joint ownership. Once you get married, you take all of that person's debt, all of that person's problems, all of that person's family, you take it all. And they take all of yours. It's, It's this dialogical process, which is dignified. I am yours and you are mine. And what Song of Solomon teaches us is that we can have conversation around these things and have this dialogical interchange with each other that is joint ownership. And then verse 7 of chapter 4, there's exposure and intimacy. It's this beautiful picture. Verse 7, you're altogether beautiful, my love. There's no flaw in you. Now, is that true? No. Of course she was flawed. Of course she was. But she was exposed. And so he sees all of who she is. And at that moment of exposure, he covers her with these beautiful words for the purpose of intimacy. Look, anytime there's vulnerability and exposure, the way this works biblically is you cover each other with words of grace and peace. My journey group right now, God, I love those guys. All of them. All of us have a story, and all of us have shared our stories and the worst parts about it. And when we do, and the other group members say, I see that about you. I see you've exposed yourself. I see you've exposed who you are, your sin and your pain and your background, and I accept you and I love you. That's when intimacy grows. Chances are, right now, if you think about every relationship in your life that means something to you, your relationship developed when you risked something, when you were vulnerable, when you shared a fear, you shared a sin, or you shared an anxiety, and the other person said, I'm okay with that. That's how intimacy develops. And there's this beautiful picture here of as we share and as we expose ourselves to each other, we must be covered and clothed with words of grace and with words of peace. Now, there's a problem with love. And the problem is this. Uh, it doesn't always end like a fairy tale. And it, our lives don't work out like a Nicholas Sparks movie, right? Matter of fact, Ruth Graham, she was asked, what's the secret uh, to your marriage with Billy Graham? And she said, well, the two of us are happily incompatible. <laughs> So there is a sense where you could be uh, living and feel incompatible, but it's kind of working. And there is a sense, I read this at a wedding yesterday, uh, John and Deborah's wedding, the two of them, both their second marriages and all the mingling of all the family and the great stories of redemption in their lives. I need to tell you about them sometime. They're members here at this church, and they're, uh, as of right now, on their way to Hawaii. But Richard Baxter said, how hard is it to keep our hearts 
from going too far for even in honest affections towards the creature while we're so backwards to love God who should have all the heart and the soul and the might too strong love to any though it be good in the kind may be sinful and hurtful in the degree it will turn too many of your thoughts from God and they will be too often running after the beloved creature it will increase your sufferings by involving you in all the dangers and troubles of those who you overlove. In, in other words, what Baxter says, and he was a Puritan, he wrote a letter one time to his wife, and the letter was, said this, you love me too much. You love me too much because I can't possibly do for you everything that you need. You actually need Jesus to love you more than you need me to love you. You can actually overlove people. So to the married people, we know it always doesn't end well. You might be in a marriage, and you might be being abused right now. And you read the Song of Psalm, and you're like, I don't know why I can't have this kind of life. Maybe you're married, and all you do is think about the one that got away. You look her up on Facebook, see what she's doing now. You check him out on Instagram, look at his family, and everybody maybe looks happier. You look at your family, you know what's going on behind the scenes and in the bedroom, and you come to church, and you look at all the people here, and you think, everybody's got it together but us. Where's my fairy tale? I remember Robertson McQuilkin uh, once told me he was the president of CIU, and his wife got Alzheimer's, and uh, he was caring for her, and he said, he said, Andy, she, she doesn't even know my name anymore. And I said, Dr. McQuilkin, how, are you, how do you do it? And he said, well, I learned a long time ago that marriage is not 50-50. In the last 10 years, it's been 100% my effort and 0% her effort, and she doesn't even know my name. But it doesn't mean we don't have a great marriage because I love her, and I know if she was in her right mind, she would love me. Maybe you're in a situation like that. We do pledge joy or sorrow, sickness or health, plenty or want. And as Gary Thomas said, this is good for married people to hear, maybe marriage is not about your happiness as much as it is your holiness. Maybe marriage is meant to be a sanctification process where you learn more about your sinfulness and more about the other person's sinfulness and you both come to Jesus together for help. That's for married people. How about for single people? Let me just say this for the record. You're not more of a person if you're married. And sometimes we, we think that. We think that the goal, the denouement of life is to have 2.5 kids, a dog in the backyard, and a couple cars. That's an American ideal, not a kingdom of God ideal. You've got to learn how to bifurcate some of those because sometimes we think the American dream is the Christian dream. Matter of fact, Paul puts it this way. He says, now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, meaning single. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another kind. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to, to marry than to burn with passion. So I know, I know some of you are single and you don't want to be. I know it. 
But I also know that there are biblical paradigms for understanding your life and glorifying God with it, trusting him with where you are. Maybe you're divorced. And uh, every time you have to tell your story about why your husband or wife's not around and you live life with regret and shame and fear, maybe you're glad you're divorced. Maybe you're widowed and your days are filled and your nights are filled with grief and tears. Maybe beyond just the categories of romance, maybe you can't find a friend. And you've struggled for years and you just wonder why nobody wants to spend time with you or reaches out to you or initiates with you. And here's what I want to say pastorally to all of us. God speaks to every one of these situations. And in the kingdom of Christ, no matter where you are, in any of those categories, you always have a home. And if you think about the reality of what's happening in the Bible, it almost never went like a fairy tale. Abraham gave up his wife Sarah and made him sleep, made her sleep with another king. Do you think Esther really loved the king? Or did she just have to go through the process to save her people? Naomi never got married again. Think about Leah and Rachel and Jacob. These are real people. This isn't myth or allegory. Uh, Think about Leah who wakes up that morning after being given to Jacob and he says, wait, you? I wanted the other one. And now has to live the rest of her life with all of his affection going to her sister wanting to be loved for herself. Or Hagar, she's maybe my favorite. Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham who uses her basically for her uterus to have a kid. And then she gets put to the side. You know what she said at the end? She has uh, Ishmael who's called the donkey of a man, so she doesn't have an easy kid either. And she says to God, you're the one who sees me, and you're the one, God, who will look after me. There's a beautiful picture there that at the end of the day, what all of us need, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're divorced, whether you're widowed, whether you're struggling with friendship or not, you know what everybody needs? You need Christ. You need the perfect love. Because how, no matter how good your marriage is or how bad it is, you still need the love, the divine love of Jesus more than you need anything else in this world. And that is what we see in Song of Solomon chapter 8. Turn there as we see the promise of love. It says, verse 6, Set me as a seal upon your heart and as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, and its jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes, or like the flashes of the very flame of the Lord, and many waters can't quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And the beautiful picture here at the end is it does lead us towards seeing who Christ is. It says, set me as a seal upon your heart. The divine love that says, I will love you, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. All of us desperately, desperately need that kind of love. And if you have that divine love, and if you know that you're loved by Christ, by God himself this way, then you'll be able to love others without strings attached. And you'll be able to develop friendship and maybe some of them are going to be one-sided but that's okay because your tank is getting filled by christ and his love 
and you'll realize you're put on this earth to run the race that you have and the one that's set before you, it might not be the race you wish you had. You might not want to be divorced. You might not want to be widowed. You might not want to be married to them, but it's the race set before you, and it's that perfect setting the seal of Christ's love on your heart that we all need. It says in uh, 2 Corinthians 1, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and to have you send me on the way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who we proclaimed among you, Sylvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. And then look at this. For the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee? I'll say to uh, Elizabeth, uh, not as much as I should, but I say to her a lot, thanks for saying yes. Because you could have said no. It been very easy to do. And maybe now, if she knows what she knows now, she would, would have said no, right? That's the risk with engagement, isn't it? But Christ always says yes. You come to him with fear and anxiety, and you say, do you want to hear my prayer? And he says, yes. You come to him with your sin, and you say, God, will you take this? And he says, yes. You come to him, and you say, God, are you going to be faithful to me? And he says, yes. You come to him, and you say, will you love me? Will you get me home, and will you glorify me? And he says, yes, 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 and amen. I'm setting my seal upon you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I love you with an everlasting, godly, pure love, and that will never change. I'm setting my seal upon you. I am betrothing you to me. It goes on in Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance. So more than romantic love, more than friendship love, We all need divine love. If you went back to that text, you could see, not in allegory, but just through redemptive history, you could see Jesus bounding over the hills. You know, he grew up in Nazareth, and uh, it was, it's a hilly place. Jesus was a mountain boy. That's where he kind of grew up. And in the incarnation, he comes bounding over the hills, entering into our lives, knocking on the door so that we might eat with him and him with us. And as it says, he quiets us with his love and he rejoices over us with singing. He's not ashamed of you. He loves you. And he loves to say what it says in verse 16, you are mine and I am yours. And I'll take all of your sin and you get all of my righteousness. And then, if we want to look through chapter 4, he sees every flaw in you. You're naked before him, and he knows you're not perfect. 
But he says, you're altogether beautiful. Not because you're beautiful, but because he's going to make you beautiful. That one day there is this process of a sanctification being made beautiful and holy, but there's also this beautiful thing that we don't talk about as much as we should, theologically called glorification. That one day in glory, he's going to eradicate every sin out of your life and will be able to say with all honesty, there's no flaw in you. Now, friends, let me say this when we come to this table. You don't have to wait to find love. And you don't have to wait to have a perfect marriage or to have a perfect friendship or to have a perfect uh, whatever. You don't have to found, find love. He's found you. He's found you. So let him love you the way he wants to. And out of that love, you're then free to love others. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Now, Father, as we come to this table,